0: TheYeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming out in this weather, and in this parking. Probably wasn't so easy. So easy for those who came after nine fifteen. So I appreciate the effort. You could have stayed home by your fireplace. And read Ami or the Wall Street Journal or the Atlantic Review. But instead you came here to an outdoor tent. lechtech Acher Midbar Lo With the clouds of glory surrounding us from all four sides, top and the bottom, but it's still cold. Okay. If you could put your cell phones on vibrate in the beginning of the class, so you take your cell phone, you put it on vibrate in the beginning of the class, or on off, we would appreciate it very much, or you could put it in flying mode. That also works. So that way you don't feel you listen to a commandment. today's is dedicated Le'ele Nishmas Le'e Bas Reb Avram as well as Le'ele Nishmas Al-Techan Reb Yitzchak There is a story in Parshas Vayechi in this week's portion that raises many an eyebrow and is profoundly enigmatic Let me remind you, it's a story we're all familiar with, but let me me remind you the story and the nuances of the story. In Parashas Vayechi, Yaakov breathes his last breath. And in that process, before he passes, he speaks to all of his children, he blesses them, and he shares with them a final message. But before he does that, his beloved son Yosef, the Prime Minister of Egypt, brings his own two sons... Menasha and Ephraim to be blessed by their Zaydi, by their grandfather, Yaakov Vino, before he would pass on. Yaakov is emotionally moved. He tells Yosef, I never expected or imagined or anticipated to see your face. And yet God showed me not only you, but even your children. Just to be able to see you, was an unexpected dream come true. To be able to see your children, wow. And at that point, Yosef takes both of these children, places them before Yaakov in order to bless them. Yaakov, it says, is hard of seeing. His eyesight, his vision is dim. So Yosef takes the oldest son, Menashe, and places Menashe to his own left, which parallel, standing parallel to Yaakov, would be to Yaakov's right, and Ephraim, of course, he puts to his right, which is to Yaakov's left, so that way Yaakov could place his right hand on the oldest boy and his left hand on Ephraim, the youngest boy. And then we know what Yaakov does is what Yaakov does, sikeles yadov. He crosses his arms, despite the fact that Menashe is the oldest, Ephraim is the youngest. Yaakov Avinu crosses his arms like this and basically the left arm, the left hand goes on the boy standing to his right which would be, if I'm Yaakov, would be right here, Manasha, and his right hand goes on the boy standing to his left which is Ephraim. Yosef sees that and the Torah describes in two words his emotions vayera Rabbe Einav. It perturbs him, it does not sit well with him. There's something off about this in his eyes. And without even asking, he lifts up his father's hand. Yaakov's left hand is on Menashe, his right hand is on Ephraim. He lifts up, he wants to remove Yaakov's right arm from Ephraim. He lifts it up to put it on Menashe. And he tells his father, This is not the way, my father. Menashe is the bcher. The one standing to your right is the Sim mincha roisha. Your right hand should be on his head. Va'yimoein aviv. His father refuses. Va'yomer and he says these words. Yadati b'ni Yadati. I know my son. I know. I know my son. I know. Gam hu Vagamhuyigdal. Menasha will be a great na- a nation and will become great. But his younger brother will yet be greater than he, and his children, his descendants, will fill the nations. On that day, Yaakov blesses them, and he gives them the famous blessing that has become immortalized in Jewish history, Yesimcha Eloikim Ke'ephrayim ve'chimenashah. Yaakov says, In you, Israel shall be blessed. Meaning, in you, you two children should become the paradigm of blessing for all the Jewish people. Meaning, every father, every mother will tell his or her child, May God make you, turn you into a Phrayim May God bless you like a Emanash. May God. Achieve with you what has been achieved with Ephraim and Menashe. But Ephraim comes before Menashe. That's the end of the story. And that is why till today, literally some 3600 years later, it's quite a lot of time, as Jewish fathers bless their children Friday night, or as all Jewish fathers bless their children moments before Kol Nidre, as the sun is about to set on Erevim Kippur and the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, enters, and the Jewish father with tender loving care and often with tears in his eyes, embraces each one of his children and says these words that Yaakov once identified and designated as the paradigm blessing for a child, Yisimcha Elykim kefrayim ke V'Chimenashem. May God place you, may God be with you, may God see you, may God bless you as Ephraim and Menashe. And I ask you today the question, what is the significance of this blessing? From all people we could compare our children to, we can compare them to many people. Compare them I mean in the sense of being inspired by many people, looking up to many people, learning from many people, emulating many people, being blessed like many people were blessed. It's Ephraim and Menashe. That Yaakov feels every Jewish child needs the blessing to be able to learn what it is to be an Ephraim and what it is to be a Menashe. Why? There's something else about Ephraim and Menashe. When Yaakov Avinu speaks to Yosef before his passing, when he asks him to take his body after his death and bring it to Eretz to the Holy Land, and inter it in Chevron in the cave of the Machpelah, together with his parents with Yitzchak and Rivka, grandparents of Ram and Sarah, together with his wife Leah, he tells Yosef one more message. He says, shnei lecha be'aretz mitzrayim. Ad mitzrayim, liheim, Ephraim Menasha, Translation, your two children who were born to you in Egypt before I arrived in Egypt. There were many Jewish children, many grandchildren born in Egypt after Yaakov arrived in Egypt. But those two boys who were born in Egypt before I came to Egypt. As we recall in Parshas Miketz, Yosef is appointed prime minister of Egypt. And in the process, he needs a good shidduch. Pare finds for him a wonderful young woman named Asnas, whom the Torah identifies as the daughter of Paiti Fera Kaihin Ayn which means they probably knew each other. Yosef marries Asnas, and before the hunger begins, during the years of plenty, Asnas gives birth to two boys, to Menashe and Ephraim. Obviously these kids were born years, years before Yaakov came to Mitzrayim. These were in the years of plenty, when Yosef was the prime minister of Egypt, it would still take many years, the years of plenty would end, the years of famine would come, after two years of famine, when Yaakov finally relocates to Egypt. So he says, those two boys who were born in Egypt before I came to Egypt, Lehaim, they're mine. They are mine. They're not grandchildren, they're children. Ephraim and Menasha are like Reuven and Shimon. Reuven and Shimon are not grandchildren. Reuven and Shimon are children. They're my first two boys. Leah's first two children, born together, with, born from her marri- born during her marriage with Yaakov, her first two children, and Yaakov's first two children are Reuven and Shimon. Ephraim and Menashe are like Reuven and Shimon. Leheim, they're mine. The children that you had after Menashe and Ephraim, after I came to Egypt, they belong to you. <laughs> they're grandchildren. We all know there's a difference between children and grandchildren. The difference, of course, is at some point the grandchildren, the grandparents could turn to the daughter-in-law and say, and now maybe the children want their own home and their own bed. There's a point where you could hopefully, maybe, I don't know about the situation in your life, but perhaps there's a time where you could tell your children, they are your children. They are your children. I dealt with you, and now as revenge you deal with them. So Yaakov tells Yosef that the next kids are yours. What are the practical ramifications if they're lehem or they're Yosef's children this Yaakov doesn't mean he won't love his grandchildren, he won't be there for them he won't help them buy a beautiful house in Egypt uh, actually he, they didn't need Yaakov's money, they had Yosef's money so that actually worked that actually worked, because Yosef, uh, Yosef had a nice job. But what it means is, as Rashi says, that uh, Ephraim and Menashe are considered part of the 12 Shvatim. There's 12 Shvatim, Ephraim and Menashe and That's why we, when we speak about the 12 Shvatim, we'll often say Ephraim and Menashe, not Yosef. Really, it's only Yosef. Ephraim and Menashe become like the original children, and that's why when the land was divided... It was divided not only to Reuven, Shimon, Le'e, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvul, and Yosef and Yamin, but Yosef's part was to Ephraim and Ephraim and Menashe. As Rashi puts it, Menashe and Ephraim are considered part of my own children, they will each get... A plot in the holy land, each one of them, Ephraim and Menashe, as though they were the original tribes, the original children of Yaakov Avinu. And I want to understand why. How do we, why? Yaakov doesn't say. Yaakov just says, These boys who were born in Egypt before I came to Egypt, they should be, they will be mine. Why? Is it because your love to Yosef? Special preferential treatment for Yosef than perhaps all of his children but Yaakov does say why without say spelling out the why he says they were born in Egypt before I came to Mitzrayim that's the key they were born before I was here Lehem they become mine now this is an interesting paradox usually you would think if they were born after Yaakov came to Egypt he was at their Briz he was at their Shalom Zachar He may have been their sandik, he could raise them, he can embrace them, he can grow up with them. Ephraim and Menashe actually he could not watch grow up. They were born and raised in Egypt by their father and mother without grandparents. Yaakov was not there. He didn't even know they were alive, he didn't know they existed. Nor they perhaps knew that Yaakov existed but he knew nothing about them. And yet paradoxically it's these children who he says were born before I came to Mitzrayim. And therefore, I did not watch them be... I would not see their birth. Nor did I watch them grow up. When I come into the picture, they are already growing ups. They are adults. Nonetheless, or at least on their way to growing up. They're not babies anymore. Lee, Haim, these are the children who are mine. Precisely these. The children that were born later, they're yours, they're not mine. They're considered grandchildren. These are considered children. Why? And then, of course, we really have to understand what happened with the crossing of the hands. We all understand Yosef's sentiment. Yosef is thinking, not again. Let's not go down this trail of giving superior treatment to the baby brother of the older brother. Loichen avi. Please, Tati. You know, and I know very, very well. Father, you remember what you forgot what happened with Asaph? You forgot what happened with Yitzchak and Yeshmal? You forgot what happened with Kayan and Hevel? I mean, this doesn't stop. You forgot what happened with me, the baby, the Muzinik, or the second one to the youngest. Binyamin was the Muzinik. You forgot what happened? Loichay Navi. That's not the way to do it. Zehabcher. Menashe is the oldest. Let him get the right hand. And ya- Yaakov refuses, Vayimayin, he refuses. And this is the same word Vayimayin that we have already two times in Bereshas. One, Yaakov refuses to be comforted when Yosef never returns. Everybody tries to comfort him. And the second Vayimayin is, Poitifra's wife tries to seduce him She says, lay with me, sheikh va'yima'in. And he refuses. With the famous... With the famous shalsheles that we addressed some time ago. Va'yima'in. Yosef refuses. Yaakov refuses to be comforted. Yosef refuses to surrender his morality to the wife of Petifar. And now Yaakov refuses to listen to Yosef and switch his hands around. Yaakov says, Yodati Bni Yodati, twice. He could say, Yodati Bni, I know. He doesn't say, I know. He says, I know, my son, I know. The second I know is not the first I know. When I tell you, I know, my son, it means I know. When I say, I know, my son, I know, that second construction. I'm glad you see that as music. It's very beautiful. So what's, what's the second Yadati? I know, my son, I know. There is knowledge and there is knowledge. There is I know, but then there is I know. I know that which you're saying and I know that which you're not saying. I know that which is on the surface and I know that which is beneath the surface. I know that which is consciously being displayed and I know that which is also unconsciously being undisplayed. Yadati B'ni Yadati, I know. It goes so far that the Medrash Rabbah writes here that Yadati B'ni Yadati doesn't refer to Ephraim and He says, Yadati B'ni Yadati, I know what happened with Reuven. And Yadati B'ni Yadati, I know what happened with Yehuda. I know what Reuven did to my bed, and I know what Yehuda did with Tamar. Yadati B'ni Yadati. And the Medrash says... In this parish, Yaakov turned to Yosef and says, Things that you don't know, I know. Do you think things that you know, I don't know? Yadati b'ni yadati. Nonetheless, I'm crossing my hands. Why? Not because Menashe is not a great kid. He will be awesome. He, he'll be a nation, he'll become great. So here we have an interesting question. Yosef says Menasheh is the oldest. He gets the right hand blessing. Yaakov says Menasheh is the oldest, but Ephraim has to have the right hand blessing. First of all, what's so significant about getting a blessing with the right hand on your head? And Yosef feels it belongs to Manasha, Yaakov feels it belongs to Ephraim. What is the significance of the right hand blessing? Second, if Yosef feels that Menashe deserves blessing with the right hand because he is the oldest. And that is a reason enough to get the blessing with the right hand. Why does Yaakov disagree? So Yaakov says he might be the oldest, but Ephraim is greater. If Ephraim is greater, why then is Menashe the oldest? What is Yosef's perspective? What is Yaakov's perspective? Or even more you can ask. If Menashe is the oldest and you're going to bless them, why don't you bless Menashe? To be that person you want to bless Ephraim to be. I'm asking you to bless. Bless Manasha to be the person you want Ephraim to be. Ah, the answer to this is very simple and very profound. No blessing in the world will make your child what he or she is not. You Can't do that. You can't say, bless my child, I'll bless my child. By putting him or her in this position so they will become their brother. A bracha can only identify the resources that exist in the child's soul. A blessing means tuning into the ultimate potential that this person has and helping them access their own potential. The word bracha means blessing. What does the real anybody knows the root of the word bracha in Hebrew? po Yisraelim she evrit. Breicha. What's breicha? A swimming pool. What's the connection between a bracha and a swimming pool? That if you have a pool in your house, it's blessed or not? Ah, huh? oh. The idea of a brecha actually comes from another word. In Mishnayos, you have hamavrich et hagefen, grafting a vineyard, a vine. Hamavrich et hagefen. You know what grafting is? The farmers among you. Any farmers here? You're Munsi Jews, you're not farmers? Oh, okay. I thought you came to suburbia to be able to farm. You can't do that in Borough Park. ha <laughs> You graft your vine. So I'm not going to give a whole lesson about grafting at the moment. But basically, you take a branch of your vine, of your grape tree. You graft it, and what you do is, you put it in the ground, and it resurfaces as a new sapling, as a new tree. So you take something from the source and you draw it down. Bracha means you draw something from the source into a new region, a new location. Brecha is a pool, but the pool doesn't have natural water. Why is it called brecha? Because you're drawing water either from the faucet as it is in today's day or from the natural wellspring or from the canal or from the stream or from the lake or from the river or from the ocean or whatever your source of water you're drawing it into a new pool a new cavity that you built in your backyard we call it a brecha so what does the word bracha mean? bracha is I can't reinvent your personality people say give my child a bracha that he should become a mensch it's not going to happen (laughs) If he's a mensch, he's a mensch. If he's not a mensch, he's not a mensch. I can't give my husband a bracha, he should be a good guy. Okay? I can't... A bracha doesn't invent a personality. A bracha doesn't create a personality. A bracha is wishful thinking if you think that the person becomes what they're not. A blessing means tuning in to the source of this person's soul tuning in to the reservoir of their energy and drawing forth from there awareness, consciousness, inspiration and energy so that they should be able to become cognizant and aware of what already exists in their potential. So Yaakov can't bless Menashe to be Ephraim and he can't bless Ephraim to be Menashe. He could bless Menashe to be Menashe and he could bless Ephraim to be Ephraim. And he says, Menashe needs the right hand. Menashe needs the left hand. Ephraim needs the, needs the right hand. Now, if anybody knew about the pain that Yosef had, it was Yaakov. How indeed does he so blatantly disagree with his son? Can't he break the rules and say, you know what, Ephraim is Ephraim, let's just keep it quiet. Let him get the right hand, I will get. And let Menashe get the right and Ephraim gets the left hand. So we addressed three issues, you remember? You remember or you forgot? You're waiting for the psychology, I see. Okay, fine. Right brains, left brains. Number one, Yesimchel Lakim Kephraim I'm sorry for reviewing, but that's how I work. Yesimchelakim Kephraim Vachimenasha remains the eternal blessing. Why? Number two, Ephraim and Menashe... No, you skipped. Ephraim and Menashe... It's fine, don't worry, it's fine. Ephraim and Menashe are chosen to be Yaakov's own children because they're born before he came down into Egypt. Why? What's the logic? And number three, what is the debate between Yaakov and Yosef? And why does Yaakov insist that Menashe, even though he's the oldest, will get the left-hand blessing? And Ephraim, being the youngest, will nonetheless get the right hand blessing and he debates it and he insists it and he argues with Yosef and he prevails. This is exactly what happens. And Yosef, of course, acquiesces. This is his father's will. To understand all of this, we have to go to the names all secrets about people, or many secrets about people, are conveyed in their names. We did so with Rachel and Leah a few weeks ago. And today we'll explore the two names, Minasha and Ephraim. Who came up with these names? Why these names? The Torah tells us in Miketz. Before the hunger began, Yosef has two sons. Asnas, the daughter of Paiti gave birth to these two boys. Vayikra Yosef, Hashem, Abcher, Menasha. This is Mem Aleph, Nun Aleph. Genesis 4151. Yosef calls the oldest boy Menasha. What does Menasha mean? Anybody? Menasha. Ki, because. Vayikra Yosef, Hashem, Abcher, Menasha. Ki, Nashani Elohim es kol amoli ve es kol beis avi. Because God made me forget all of my suffering and all of the pain inflicted upon me by the home of my father. The word menashe comes, the etymology of the word menashe is forgetfulness. It's associated with another interesting word in Vayishlach, Gid Nasha. The sciatica, the sciatic nerve of Yaakov was dislocated. It was removed When you forget something, you dislocate yourself from the particular memory. I forget. In other words, I'm not anymore so attached to it. It's not up in the front of my mind, on the surface of my consciousness. I remember it, I forgot about it, so to speak. I moved on. I dislocated myself from it. I removed myself from it. So nashani, menasha means removed dislocated, forgotten, out of my memory, out of my consciousness, out of my zone, out of my immediate presence. Because God made me forget. Kol amoli, All of my agony, all my amal, all my toil, my blood, my sweat, my tears, my suffering, and the home of my father. Everything I experienced in the home of my father, I forgot. That's the first boy. Interesting name for a boy. Forgetfulness. What is your name? Forgetfulness. Why? Because my father forgot. My father forgot. Nice name, no? Okay. The second boy he calls Ephraim. Why Ephraim? Because Hashem made me fruitful in the home of, in the land of my poverty, in the land of my suffering. The word Ephraim is associated with the word peri, fruits, procreate, reproduce, multiply, lifros, velivos, to increase, to add. Hashem made me fruitful. He made me successful. He made me prosperous. He allowed me to multiply, to grow excessively and tremendously. We're in this land of my poverty, in this land where I was sold as a slave, ended up in a pit, ended up as a complete victim. In this land of any of my poverty, of my suffering, He made me fruitful and multiply. Two names. Two sons, forgetfulness, disassociation, dislocation, and Hifrani, fruitfulness, prosperous, success. What does this represent? Why did he choose these two names? It's two psukim in case. but it's these two names that capture the unique essence of menasha and Ephraim, and the drama of the story. And we come back here to the story of Yosef's life that we ex- explored last week when we discussed being sold versus being sent. And now we go to the next step. Yosef's life always remains profoundly inspiring, but also profoundly difficult to come to terms with the amount of suffering this young man went through at the age of 9 his mother passes away at the age of 7 of 17 he's abducted by his brothers who throw him into a pit and then sell him into slavery so he loses his freedom as a slave a successful slave but a slave nonetheless he's accused of promiscuous immoral violation of another human being, of the life of his master. And as a result, he's thrown into a dungeon, a pit. And he's there, he languishes there for 12 years. This is a story of profound misery, of profound agony, of profound suffering. It's a story that every person understands would often crush and destroy an ordinary human being to be able to go through so much, and it never stops. And then, from all of this, Yosef emerges as the Prime Minister of Egypt, but not without a price, the price of separation. Price of separation from his father, price of separation from his brothers, from his sister or sisters, price of separation from the whole family reality, family gestalt, Yosef is alone, he's alone in the world, successful, on top, but alone. Usually, a man like this, you would expect to become extremely stone-like, hard, tough, rough, jaded, cynical, bitter, frustrated, angry. Or so angry that he wouldn't even feel his anger. He would just shut himself down from his emotions. There's two levels of anger. There's you feel your anger and you're so angry, you're so jaded, you're so hurt, you don't even feel it anymore. You cried so much that you stopped crying. Not because you're happy, because you don't have any tears left. You would be able to expect from Yosef a feeling of revenge, of vengeance, of deep, deep hurt that would translate into perhaps deep anxiety, melancholy, depression, even if it would be success outwardly, internally there would be so much pain that is unresolved because of the trauma. Talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> at which level? At which age? You know, Ask me what age and I'll tell you what I went through that year. It's not one event, it's not two events. It doesn't stop. Nonetheless, he emerges as one of the happiest people in the whole of Tanakh always full of grace, and always rises to the top. Every opportunity somehow, he seizes as a catalyst for tremendous growth. Not only does this boy not resign to mediocrity, not only does he not live an ordinary life, not only does he live an ordinary life, which is in itself a revolutionary, novel experience for a person who went through this, but actually every crisis for him becomes an opportunity. He doesn't see obstacles. He only sees challenges. Wrong. He doesn't even see challenges. All he sees are opportunities. If you'd ask Yosef, what type of life did you have? He said, I had a life of extraordinary opportunity. Like nobody else. Why? Because he was sent. If I'm sent, then I don't have challenges. I have opportunities. I was sent here for the opportunity that this experience allows me to encounter and bring forth from myself and from the experience. It's like oil. You mix the oil with everything and it always comes back to the top. Never loses its identity, ever. But it's And Yosef does this and he remains compassionate, forgiving, sensitive, full of grace and charm. You want to be in His presence. You don't like to be in the presence of bitter people, do you? You don't like to be in the presence of people with heavy energy. You don't like to be in the presence of people who think life is an endless curse. Were you ever in the presence of such people? It's heavy, right? It's loaded. You come home and you have to deal, besides dealing with your own problematic energy... Now you have to deal with the energy of all the heavy people around you. Even salt baths for a week sometimes can't cure it. Yosef, you want to be around. You like this kid. You want to be by. You want to be around him. Why? He's always fun. He's full of spunk. He's full of vitality. He's full of vivaciousness. He's full of chain. Everybody loves this person, and he knows how to cry. He knows how to sob. We want to understand the mechanism of how he got there. And the mechanism he himself articulated in the names of his two sons. Basically, the birth of his two children represented for him a triumph. But not only his own personal triumph. What would become a paradigm for all of his descendants, for all of history. As it says in Medrash Tehillim in Kapitel Pei, that all Jews are called Yosef. He leads the flock, which are called Yosef. We're all Yosefs. And he celebrates this in the names of his two children. Menashe is the first and Ephraim is the second. And the names are very different. The name of Menashe says, I managed to forget. Nashani elekim es kol amoli kol God made me forget all of my toil and all of the home of my father. What does it mean he forgot the home of his father? Did he really forget the home of his father? We will see in a few chapters. He forgot nothing. His brothers came. The first thing it says, he recognized them. He accused them of spies, as being spies. He did his whole Maisa with Shimon and Binyamin. He knew exactly who they were. What do you mean? He, I forgot the home of my father. You didn't forget the home of your father. His first question years later when he reveals his identity is Ani Yosef, Ha'oid Avi Chai Is my father still alive? He didn't forget his father or the home of his father. Of course what this means is he forgot the pain that he experienced in Beis Avi. But what does it mean he forgot? Did he really forget? Can a person forget being stripped from his personal intimate tunic that his father gave him and thrown into a pit with scorpions? Do you think any of you would forget? Can a person forget being sold as a slave for life? Not 12 years a slave, a slave for life? From a prince, from a king, from a free boy, a family of royalty into a slave? Can a person forget being accused of rape and promiscuity and being thrown into a pit for 12 years? Can you really forget that? Can a person forget saving a butler and asking him for a favor and him ignoring you? Can you forget that? What did you forget? Can Yosser forget the fact that the Medrash says that when they were taking him down from Israel, from the Holy Land to Egypt, they passed by Beis Lechem, and the Medrash says he ran away to the grave of his mother, and he started to weep. Mother, mother, why did you abandon me? Arise from your sleep and help your baby. And Rachel weeps and weeps and weeps for her baby Yosef. And the Egyptians or the Midianites or the Ishmaelites who, who, who were bringing him down, different versions, of how you learn the story, they take him and they beat him and they whip him. Can Yosef really forget that? He suffered. He suffered from amnesia. He really forgot everything. What does it mean, Nashani Alekin? But he doesn't say, Nashani Kol Beisavi. He says, Eskol Amoliv Eskol What it means is, Yosef, the word is Nashani, like Gidhanosha. He managed to remove himself from it. He managed to reach a state where he was not stuck in those memories. There is forgetting the facts. That's one form of forgetting. What's important is not to forget the facts. We're talking here about a conceptual type of forgetting where the memories don't define me today. I'm not living stuck and paralyzed within those memories. I am not responding from the emotional place in which I could have been defined by those memories. God gave me the fortitude and the courage to be able to disassociate my eye from those memories. So I don't remain in a trapped mode. I'm not a paralyzed man. I'm not a depressed human being. I'm not an angry human being. I'm not a vengeful human being. Because I do not allow the person who did whatever he or she did to me to continue living in my brain 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, rent free. They always say if you want to let your enemy live in your brain, great, but at least charge him rent. He occupies your brain for such a long time, it's nice rent, it's good real estate. Especially if he takes over your whole consciousness. At least get a couple of dollars for it. Say you let him live in your brain and you don't even get rent. What's the worth of it? Yosef may remember everything. Yosef told his brothers, You sold me to Egypt. He forgot? Nobody forgets this, and Yosef didn't have such a... He wasn't such a klotz cop. He remembered. You would remember, I would remember, trust me, he remembered. You don't forget these things so fast. You remember every time your brother made a remark to you that you didn't like, you remember it 29 and a half years later. Still dealing with it. So you don't remember, Yosef didn't remember when he threw them, into a, threw them into a pit and sold them into slavery. Ki nashani yelekim means... Yosef manages to access an I that is free, uninhibited, infinite, invincible, part of God and therefore indestructible. So even though I went through what I went through, and it was painful, and I will sob when I tune into those emotions and those experiences, I could stare at it, I could look at it. There's a part of me that could say, and now, I'm going to move. I'm going to create. My life will not be defined as a victim for eternity. My entire emotional life, a response to decisions made by other people. And impressions created within me by other people. I have the freedom to be able to say, yes. This happened to me. But it does not define who I am and my self-perception. Now in words, we can say it. In experience, it's far deeper. It's really the difference if you get bruised in life or you get tattooed in life. As you know, the Torah says, don't engrave a tattoo in your skin. Bruised? Yes. Tattooed? No. What's the difference between a bruise and a tattoo? We all carry scars. We all carry bruises. If you're a human being, you carry scars, you carry bruises. But watch a child playing. A good game of children playing outdoors. In the good old days when there was a concept called outdoors. Before videos, before iPhones, before iPods, before iPads, before even, uh, when I was a kid they came out with Donkey Kong and uh, Pac-Man. Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, remember that? But then you had to go, pay a quarter, put in the quarter, and you had a game for four minutes and it was like the biggest simcha. Today, six, seven hours without blinking, but the bottom line is it's quiet in the kitchen. So let's not underestimate quiet in the kitchen for people who are rattled with anxiety, present company excluded. But when kids used to play outside, when there was still a concept called outside, outside of a roof, which we're trying to bring you into. That's why we have the construction all over the place. And the noise is just to remind you of, of natural, organic living, as close to the outdoors as we can get in this weather, in this beautiful winter weather in Muncie. Within five, 10 minutes, somebody gets black and blue. Right? And before people sued, this was part of growing up. You come home, how do you know it was a good game? You were dirty you were bruised, you were wounded, somebody was bleeding, and you had the time of your life. And you had to scream at the kids to be home before sun rises the next morning. Okay. Bruised, tattooed, scarred, uh, bruised, bruised, yeah. Tattooed is something else. So the question is, do you carry tattoos, or do you carry bruises? Tattoos ingrain themselves, they become entrenched. This is now my identity. The Torah says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have to be able to remain in a state of endless possibilities. Don't tattoo yourself. Sometimes I feel bad. People are in a love stage, so they tattoo a picture of somebody on their arm. The problem is, in six months, I want to tell the guy, in six months, you're going to hate her. She's going to hate you. Trust me. Right? But now he's in a euphoric state. He thinks his Messiah arrived. Yeah, till he's gonna meet the shvigir, or she'll meet him. And uh and what do you do with the tattoo? You're stuck. But even if your tattoo is something else, endless possibilities. Bruises are transient, black and blues come and go. Tattoos are permanent. Yosef never allowed anybody to tattoo him. Emotionally, psychologically, internally. That was Manasha. What a great victory to be able to say. I am not my trauma. I am not my experience. I am not my abuse. I am not my depression. I am not my pain. And I am not the person that emerged from that pain. That's not who I am. It's part. It's, it's, it's in me. It's part of my experience. But that doesn't sum up the story of my life. And therefore... I remain internally free. But then, Yosef reaches a second state. The second state is Ephraim. Ephraim is something different. frani be'eretz God made me fruitful in the land of my poverty. Now, before we go to Ephraim, let me clarify something. We say every day, we say often before, not every day, but we say often from Tehillim, some people say it before benching on Shabbos and Yomtev. So usually when you hear that, it means the Sheva Brachas is almost over and you'll be able to get your nap. But let's analyze the verse. Okay? when God brings back Sheva Zion Sheva Zion the captives of Zion we will figure out we were dreamers we were dreamers what does this mean we were dreamers is this a good thing is it a bad thing usually when you tell somebody you're a dreamer you're in la la land yeah when you tell your husband your husband comes home right and he tells you about this new plan right he's making 3 billion dollars within the next 4 weeks And you look at him and you're like, sure. Dream on, my dear. Add it to another dream of yours. Since I married you, every day is around 10 or 20 dreams. Add this on. One day you'll sober up. (laughs) Is Hajinu yinu complimentary or is it derogatory? Somebody once told the Ponevich Yerav, Rav Kahanman, Ponevich Yerav, you're dreaming. He says, yeah. Abba sinishtimit it's not while I'm sleeping. I'm up. It's a different type of dream. What's Hayinu Kahal? So the brisker of Reb Velvola Soloveitschik, Levi known as the brisker of the Rabbi of Brisk of Lithuania, also known as uh, Reb Velvola Brisker, Reb Velvola once gave a very penetrating interpretation. I'm going to use a metaphor that's not very comfortable to use, but I want to illustrate it, so therefore I'm sacrificing uh, uh, comfort for uh, what I think will be a little more illustrated. And that is, how many of you have had dreams that you were in the Holocaust? You were in the concentration camps? Nobody? Please, come on. Nobody here had dreams of being in Auschwitz and Birkenau? Yes? Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sheikh b'nish the sugar in here. Especially if you have family that was there. Especially if you've been reading about it. Especially, who knows, if your soul was there and you're a reincarnation. I don't know. I'm not an expert in these things. Those who say don't know, those who know don't say. That's the klah when it comes to reincarnation. However... You know how horrible those dreams are. They're not dreams; they're nightmares, and you vividly experience in your dream what happened there. Now we know it's a dream, but the dream when you're dreaming, you don't know it's a dream. You sometimes scream, you sweat, you holler, you're terrified, you can't imagine this happening to you. Your hiding place is discovered. Whatever your experiences are from dreaming about the Holocaust in your own. Life's stories. I have had it and I still have it in my life and my dreams. Thank you for the empathy over there. But what happens when you wake up? When you wake up for the first few moments, you're terrified. You're horrified. But then as you wake up, you get yourself together, you wash up, etc. You start your day. Usually, not always, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour later. Well, thank God it was a dream. Thank God it was a dream. We're not living under the Third Reich, the SS Yemach Wow, wow, wow. It's hard to conceive that just two mortgages ago, not long ago, 70 years ago, two mortgages ago, it's a different world. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, some of them, many of them, completely different world. I was two weeks ago in Poland and I visited many of the sites, Maidanek, Auschwitz, Birkenau, Uh, Warsaw Ghetto, Umschlag, similar places and and I'm quite an assiduous student of Holocaust history relatively speaking and uh, to see those physical sites, to see the railway tracks to see the places of selection it's like, you know, it's completely silent the earth swallows up all history the earth says nothing about the truth it's almost serene you can almost think it's tranquil but to think in your imagination how much screaming and terror this earth and this heaven internalized and experience. That's why the Navi says maybe one of the profoundest words, Eretz al-techasidomam. Earth, don't lie. Don't cover up the blood. Earth, don't cover up the blood. The earth is silent. But you wake up and you say, okay, it's a 21st century <laughs> I'm in New York. And even if you hate Trump or love Trump, hate Hillary or love Hillary, and hate uh, who became the new expert, Sanders or not, nonetheless, it's a different world. You breathe a sigh of relief. Why? Because it was a dream. It was a dream. What about a person who was there? What about a person who was there? They're not sleeping in Muncie or in Los Angeles or in Chicago or in Toronto or in Tel Aviv and having a dream. They were there. They were there for a month. They were there for 10 months. They were there for three years. They saw what happened to their mother, to their siblings. They saw what happened to themselves. They saw what happened to 6 million Jews. Often, as you know, some of you know it from your parents and grandparents, they never wake up in the morning and say it was a dream because it wasn't a dream. It was reality. It was not a dream. Some of them hollered in the middle of the night for decades. Some of them could never recover. In fact, it's a miracle to even think somebody could recover from what they saw. It's not that we don't understand the Holocaust. We don't even under- trust me when I say we don't understand that we don't understand the Holocaust. That's the truth. And this is being told by you by somebody who doesn't understand what he just said. But that's the truth. In fact, I once sat in Tel Aviv with a Jew. He had a pen name. His name was Kitsetnik. His real name was Yechiel Dinur. Anybody here read any books by Kitsetnik about the Holocaust, the House of Dolls? Okay, if you want to be depressed for a few weeks in bed, you can read the House of Dolls by Kitsetnik. I knew him. He, his name was Yechiel Ben-Nur. When he testified by the Eichmann trial in 1961, he fainted in the middle of his testimony. We spoke for a long time, for two hours in his apartment in Tel Aviv. He already passed on. At the end of the conversation, I took out a camera to take a picture. I wanted to have a picture of him. He said, don't take a picture. I said, why not? I'll never forget, he spoke to me in Yiddish. He says, V'al azduvest habana bild von mir... Vestu as von Auschwitz und von Auschwitz You'll take a picture of me and you'll think you have a picture of me. You'll have a picture of an Auschwitz survivor. There are no pictures from Auschwitz. Don't think you have a picture. He would not let me take a picture. Don't think you have a picture. You have no picture. You don't look at this person and say it was a dream. It was not a dream. It was reality. For me, I woke up from my sleep. Five minutes, I'm shaking. I brush my teeth. I take a shower. It was a dream. Says Debriske Rav. Now, I wouldn't say this, but he lost his wife and he lost his children in the Holocaust. So such a person could say it. He lost much of his family. He had a few who survived and he rebuilt. He didn't have more children, but he rebuilt. I mean, he raised his kids, children in Yerushalayim, but his wife was killed and his children were killed In in brisk I'm not going to tell you how they were killed it's not for now he said he said something very profound he said what's the difference if it was a dream or it was reality the difference is this if it was a dream I could start my day fresh I don't say I'm not going to work today I'm not going to be successful today because you know what happened to me? And I tell you what happened. It didn't happen to you, it was a dream. But if something happened to you, it paralyzes you. <laughs> what does redemption mean? Redemption means that the Jewish people will be able to liberate themselves and extricate themselves from all their trauma and pain in such a powerful way, that you would think it was a dream. HaYinu you would think it was a dream. In other words, redemption in a person's life means the ability for a person not to deny reality, but to be able to say that despite the trauma that I experienced, now let's talk about our generation's trauma, because the trauma of 70 years ago is beyond description. But the ability to be able to say, that the trauma you experience, consciously or unconsciously, and I'm referring her in ter- ter- terms of molestation, which is profoundly traumatic, or abuse, and I not only mean only mean physical, verbal, emotional, psychological. Sometimes in a marriage, sometimes as a child, sometimes as a teenager, all forms or deep mental anguish and deep psychological struggle, to be able to say that ultimately, it does not. Hijack my future. It does not hijack my soul. My soul is a mi ma'al mamish. It's a piece of the divine, it's a fragment of infinity, and nothing and nobody has access to that core: confidence, wholesomeness, optimism, joy, creativity, and sense of endless possibility. That's the Jewish people will not be reacting to trauma. And they won't be responding from that space. That is what redemption means. And it begins on a spiritual, internal level. And then it develops into a collective geula. The sheva tziya. always begins individually. And then it morphs into the collective sheva of all of the Jewish people. And ultimately of the whole world. This doesn't deny. This is Nashani lekim es kalam olives ves kalbei But then, in Ephraim, Yosef reaches a second plateau. What's the second plateau? Yosef says, Hashem made me fruitful in the land of my poverty. Wow. Eretz Onyi, he's not running away from it. He says the very experience of poverty was a springboard for endless growth. This is a different stage. This is the stage where Yosef doesn't only experience forgetfulness, the ability to forget, but Yosef now experiences the ability for transformation. Transformation means, I am so wholesome, I can look back at the experience and actually You want to finish the sentence? I can look back at the experience and make a certain peace, make peace with it. And even, dare I say, Yosef says, wow, look at the blessings created in my life as a result. But one second, you can't get to Ephraim if you don't go through Menasheh. That's like people who come to a Shiva call and say some of the stupidest things that you'll hear on the planet. And I always say at these places, Einstein was right. When he said two things are infinite the universe and stupidity. And the latter is more infinite than the former. The things I heard, not only when I was sitting Shiva, but watching, sitting by other people's people, Shiva I could write a book from the brilliance of people, what they say. For example, at least she's in a good place now. That's wonderful. Isn't that brilliant? And that's only a tipa ayam. I'm not going to entertain you now with various nuggets of wisdom that I heard. Or people sit down, they nod, and they say, everything is for the good. Everything is for the good. And then they start preaching to you a munah. They become the experts on faith. And the most important thing, God has chosen them as his personal lawyers. So they're busy explaining to the person why God does what he does. Better dig a bet, and get out of the house, you moron. That's what I tell them. The other day I was sitting by somebody, and somebody comes and starts telling him Torah. He's telling, preaching to him about faith. He shouldn't lose his faith. Guy looks at him and says, "Listen, I sat shiva five times. I heard all of this. You don't have to finish. I could finish the story for you." So what do you do? So he turns to me. So he says, "Let me tell you what I wanted to tell him." You understand? This guy had the audacity. I said, wow, you couldn't come for Nechem Havelim. You came to give a sermon. The guy sitting shiver doesn't want to hear, so now I'm going to be the victim. I don't work for you. I'm not on your payroll. You could go share it with your father-in-law. He says, no, 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 it's a good word. You'll use it. Chachmas Chalem. In Chalem they were more brilliant. Who asked you to be God's lawyer? First of all, you know God. God told you what, he, what he's doing, what he's thinking. Who appointed you a lawyer for God? And second of all, where do you have the audacity to think that your faith is stronger than this person's faith and he needs you to tell him about Amuna? Who asked you? Who requested of you? The answer has nothing to do with Amuna. It has to do with your own insecurity, and awkwardness to be silent and present. And you're not in touch with emotions and you don't know how to be in touch with other people's emotions. You don't know what the word empathy means. So in lieu of your lack of empathy and emotional maturity, how do you justify being such an empty person? You become a custodian for God. And that gives you a full sense of a glorious personality. You don't come to a shivakal, you come on a divine mission to preach the gospel of Bitochon to people suffering. Get a life. (laughs) I don't mean people sitting here, present company, but you understand my concept. Not because God is not good and not because God doesn't know what he's doing, but you are not his spokesman as far as I know. Be quiet. Listen, shed a tear. And there's nothing wrong sitting 30 minutes and not saying a word. There's nothing. Who said you have to preach? You don't have what to say. Sit, zy still. Nothing wrong with being quiet. Silence is far truer than words. Trust me, I talk a lot. But let me tell you what I don't say is always far more brilliant than what I do say. Especially when I come home. <laughs> in fact, I get out all my words outside of the house, so that way when I come home, I don't have to say a word. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. Ask her how much I speak in my house. I eat, I do other things, I don't speak. So, you understand, you don't jump to Ephraim before Menashe, it doesn't work that way. You don't transform, Before you forget. Before you manage to disassociate. You can't look at pain and say, Oh, you were abused? That's so wonderful. What a blessing, this mamish opportunity. You're going to become such a great neshama. I'm so happy for you that you were abused. It's an unbelievable bracha. Maybe a bracha for you, not for me. If not, you become dehumanized. You become a a robotic, insensitive, neurotic angel. You heard what I said? It worked, no? Robotic, insensitive, neurotic angel. An angel you are. But I don't want to be with such angels. Because they're robotic, neurotic, insensitive, and usually stupid too. And sometimes cruel and crazy also. Or certainly nudniks. Velt nudniks. You know what a nudnik is? My grandmother used to say the Shlomiel pours the soup on the Shlomazel. And the Nudnik wants to know what type of soup was it. You understand? And then you have a Nudnik, then you have a Veltz A Veltz means a Nudnik, world-renowned Nudnik. A Yid once came to a Rav and he said, I speak to myself a lot. What should I do? The Rav says, big deal, I also talk to myself. Most people at some stage in life, you don't have anybody to talk to. You start talking to yourself, we all know that. He says, Rabbi, you don't understand, but I'm a nudnik. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when a nudnik talks to you, to you it's a whole different story. A <laughs> nudnik. You don't go to Ephraim before Manasha, because it's not real. It's not authentic. The first thing Yosef has to find within himself is the ability to extricate himself from the trauma, to extricate himself from the pain, to be able to say, I am not that, and I will not live in that space anymore. In terms of its impact on me, it's going to have to be like a dream, even though it's not a dream. Hayinu kechalim. That's the first stage of redemption. That's the first stage of beshuv Shemas as Then, Oz yimolei shoyk pinu Then there's a second stage. Yeshaya Hanavi says it in chapter eleven of Yeshaya. V'hoyah You know the posuk. You want to finish it under the Machzorim and cup. Okay. It will be on that day, the Jewish people will say, It's a very heavy pasuk. I'm just telling you. Thank you, God, for chastising me. What's the thank you? It's the ability to be able to go back to my past and not just say, I moved on. That's awesome. And don't underestimate the unique accomplishment of that space. But there's something deeper. What is deeper is that the person should be able to go back and say, Thank you. Because it's only through this that I became the person I was capable of becoming. And it's only through this breakdown that I really discovered who I really am. And it's only through this pain and this journey, and a journey that entailed a lot of blood and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears, that I came to fix things that I would never even notice. It was the challenge that took me down to the abyss that allowed me to repair things in the foundation of my psyche. And the foundation is always underground. But who wants to go underground? Who wants to go underground? But when I'm throwing underground, I get to deal with foundation levels of reality. Imagine you could repair the foundations of your psyche, the foundation of your soul. Imagine you can go down to the foundation of the world and repair the world from the bottom. Then you heal the universe. Do I choose it? You never choose it. I never choose it. But can I ever be thankful of it? Not if I start with Ephraim. If I start with Menashe, then perhaps. And this is not about pressure or duty. It's about a journey. Perhaps sometimes we can look back at certain experiences in our lives, if not all of them. Sometimes I say, not always, but sometimes we could look back and say, you know, I would have never asked for it. But if you ask me now, would you have liked if we took this whole experience away from you? Very often you'll say no. Ultimately, this is what made me who I am. Think about your life. Those things that you complain about a lot. (laughs) Those things you sort of said, you know, if I would have been like my friend in class or my sister or this one or that one. I say, okay, let's do it all over again. We're going to take that completely away from your life. It won't be here. Is that what you really want? Sometimes the answer is, let's face it, absolutely yes. Get this person out of my life, I'll be happy. But that's because I didn't reach the space yet, which is fine. It's never about judgment. Journeys are never about judgment. The worst thing you could do for yourself on a journey is to judge where you're holding. It's mamish if you have to drive from here to Miami. Imagine, right? What is it, 26 hours? Anybody does it here for fun? They say the landscape is beautiful. I don't know, I have other visions of landscape. Sitting on a couch and looking at landscape. But some people like actually the drive. So uh, imagine, you are I don't know, exit 22, you have another 100 exits, right? And you start saying, why am I not there? Why am I not there? You start judging yourself. It's a journey. You can't go to exit 24 if you don't pass exit 23. And if you're going to go to exit 24 by passing exit 23, you're going to be stopped very, very fast, and you'll probably hurt somebody on the road including yourself. You can't judge yourself on journeys. Therefore, there's two stages. In stage one, there is forgetfulness. There is uh, disassociation is the word. Disassociation, relocation, moving myself away, saying I'm not part of this anymore. I'm not going to be part of what they call in Yiddish a tanz. You know what a tanz is? A demonic dance. Which psychologically I would say, I'm not going to dance with my demons anymore. They're not going to be my dance partners. I'm going to dance with my soul. I'm going to dance with my body. I'm going to dance with my God. I'm going to dance with my freedom. I'll dance to the end of love with my endless possibilities. I'm not going to dance with my demons. Because they don't know how to dance. They know how to cripple. They say let's dance. But what they really want is, I should remain crippled, hunchback crushed, I will not dance with that anymore, I'm going to dance with my soul, for this you have to identify your soul, for this you have to identify your wholesomeness, for this you have to identify your divinity, your infinity, your being part of an endless source of light and that is indestructible at a later stage Yosef comes and he says, not I forgot I didn't forget now I don't have to forget Now I come back to a space where Hifrani Elaikim Be'erets on ye. In the land of poverty, in the land of suffering, God made me grow. Why? Because the first thing is, it allowed for awareness that was incredibly powerful. Number two, it allowed myself to reveal inner resources that were incredibly powerful. Number three, it allowed me a level of empathy that is incredibly powerful. Sometimes you go through things just to be able to be there for other people in a whole new way. In a whole new way. A man consulted me. Maybe it's in the wrong crowd for this, but it's good for you to know about this. His in-laws accused him of molesting his children. It happened to be not true. The investi- I, I can't say things are not true. I don't know. I'm not a Navi. I'm not like some other people. But the investigation said it's not true. They convinced his wife. So she went on the bandwagon that he abused his kids. They testified he was in prison for two years. It proved that he was innocent. His father-in-law had a miser with him. He was innocent. He comes out. He's still married. But he says, how am I supposed to forgive my wife for putting me into prison for two years away from the children that I never touched, I never abused? Two years in prison for this, for something he didn't do. Imagine a father... And his in- they're still his in-laws. You know what I mean? They're still inviting him for the b'mitzvah, for the Sheva Brachas. He's still supposed to be nice to the shviga and the Shver. What am I supposed to tell him? I don't have an answer to these questions. I'm smart enough that I know that I'm stupid. Which is profound wisdom in 2017. <laughs> I told him, I don't have what to say. I don't know. I don't know. I never experienced this. But I said, I'll tell you what I suggest. Open up an organization for fathers who are, abu- who are accused innocently of abusing their children. Open up an organization for them. And in that work, you will find healing. Because what you will be doing is you will be channeling all your pain into a very powerful, productive cause that empowers you Because there are people like you. I know some of them. Help them. They need people to speak to. They need financial help. They need, more importantly, legal help. And most importantly, they need a shoulder to lean on because you can go insane. Now, don't those who know my record know that I don't whitewash uh, fathers who molest and abuse kids. I'm not going to tell you where I believe they belong. But I'm also aware of the fact that we live in a crazy world where sometimes innocent people could be accused of doing things that they don't do. Not always. I wish in many cases it was that way. In more cases, but it's not in more cases, but it's in some cases. That's a different level. I don't have an answer to the pain. I don't have an answer. But sometimes what happens is you reach a state and you say, only through this could have I experienced this level of reality. This level of empathy. The Balshemtiv had a student who said, I want to see a anovi The someone says, You don't need it. He says, Please, I'll do anything. Balshemtiv gives him work for ten years. Ten years of spiritual work. He does it, and it's a tight regimen. Every day, spiritual inner work. After ten years, he does not see a anovi He comes to the Balshamtav and he says, Ten years gepatit, ten years of avoida down the drain. Hashem says, why down the drain? He says, I accomplished nothing. He says, you accomplished nothing? You became humble. You became humble. Ten years of work, you didn't see a one another, you became, you were in la-la land. You were delusional. Your connection with God was mythical, neurotic. You became humble. You became real. That's not an accomplishment. I'm going to tell you something very profound and I want to finish with this. In 1986, in 1986, a little before Purim, this time of the year, Tevis or Shvat, January time, February time, a young man wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in which he expressed his terrible struggles with homosexuality. Now you have to understand, 1986 in this area is not 2017. Lots has changed in this field. I'm not going to elaborate on it at the moment. In 1986, though, the, lobby, the lobbyists in that particular arena started to gain tremendous momentum and strength. And he asked advice, he asked counsel, he asked for guidance, and he also asked the big question, why me? I'm a regular boy, grew up in a regular yeshiva, why me? 1986. Rebbe wrote him a very long letter, very, very impressive long letter, I believe a three-page letter or more, which I saw. And it's a very long and very intense letter, no question. Even more than the content of the letter, it's the approach, the the empathy displayed in the letter, and the the length of the letter, the respect, the respect displayed in the letter. But there's one paragraph I want to share with you because it's a reflection of this. He says, you ask me why certain people have certain challenges that other people don't have, and they never choose it. They never choose it. Now, for those of you sitting in the crowd and think it's not a reality... You should just know that this is a very real question. I have to deal with it a lot. Quite a few young men come to see me, either by email or in person, with this issue. They're very good kids. They're wonderful. They're usually more sensitive than other people. But they struggle with this, and it's a very serious struggle. And it's one that they did not choose. They're 20, they're 22, they're 24. Their mothers say, No, 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 the Shatchanim calling off the hook. They're usually good, very good. They're usually sensitive and caring and kind people sometimes by definition, and they have a struggle. So the, Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes to this boy, you ask me why, and I don't know. I don't know. I do not know how God runs the world. I do not know why certain people struggle with certain things and other people don't struggle with it. I don't know the reason. But I want to share with you one possible perspective. And he says, I'm not quoting verbatim, but I'm quoting the theme the way, from what I remember years ago when I read it. And the theme is as follows. In this world... People have to discover themselves. We don't live on free lunches. The way we achieve our goals in this world is through avayda, through work. There's an expression in Sfarim, God could have given free bread, naam ad but he does not. People have to become who they become through their own avayda, through their own work. Now, sometimes there are souls that have infinite light and infinite potential. There are souls that have infinite light and infinite potential. And there's no way they're going to discover that light. And you have to discover who you are on your own. So the question is, how can you come in contact with your extraordinary greatness? Sometimes Hashem puts a challenge in your life that is very serious. And the only way you can confront, deal With And overcome that challenge is by excavating the deepest parts of your psyche. You have to dig and dig and fight and fight and go deeper and deeper and deeper and get through all your debris and all your toxicity and all your garbage and all your issues and all your layers and all your cover-ups and get to the raw, core, naked truth of your soul. Because only that spot, spot, place in you that can overcome this challenge. And in that process, you discover that you have a light that can change the world, that you have a light of insight, of infinity, that can transform not only yourself, but many. In that process, you come to find out who you are. Without that, you would have never been forced to even begin finding out who you are. And then you could come to look at it from a different perspective. Your path to misery, your path to misery on another level was your path to greatness. (inaudible) No, you don't start with this, ever. I'm miserable? Oh, it's your way to greatness. Leave me alone. You don't start with this. You start with Menashe. But Ephraim is an achievement that is infinitely greater and always requires much more kachos, much more faculties, much more powers. This is step one in unraveling the drama of the story, which we will continue. Be'ezer Hashem. Have a wonderful week. Please note next Tuesday, I'm in the Ukraine. And there is no class. I'm taking a group of 40 men to the Ukraine, to the caver of the Balshemtov, the Vadichima, and the Balatanya. If you want to send your husbands or your sons, there's still three seats left. So next week there's no class. The week after we will resume. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes.